um, finishing up, I'm going to finish up a sermon series that we started at the beginning of the summer on the Holy Spirit. And I was doing a, a bit of a mini-series within a series, right? Um, a play within a play, if you will, um, on Romans 8, uh, which, is a, which is just an incredible chapter of, on, on the life and work of the Spirit. It's really all about the Holy Spirit. So we're, we don't actually get to the very end of the verse, but this is really the end of Paul's reflection explicitly on the Spirit. And verses 18, I'm sorry, verses 26 through 30 are our verses. And I'll just be really concentrating on the first two verses here in my sermon. Uh, Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. What does it mean to be a spiritual person? True spirituality, um, the truly spiritual person is a person whose life, you might say, opens upwards. It is an openness to the reality of God in your life. That is, I think, at the very basic level what it means to be a spiritual person, to be open to the reality of God in your life. The sociologist Peter Berger described our, our secular world or modern world as a world without windows. To live in a secular age is to live in a world without windows. To be a secular person is not necessarily to be somebody who disbelieves in God's existence. Um, But rather, it's to to live in such a way that God's reality and God's presence makes little practical difference in how you live. It has very little impact I think this is a very important distinction because I think we often think of to be a secular person is to be anti-religious and anti-spiritual, to not believe in God. But really, to be a secular person, and this is where many of us here are very secular, or we all are in a way, we're all tempted this way. We live as if the reality of God is not something real, or it, it just makes no real practical impact or difference in our life. That's always the temptation. The spiritual person is one who has all the windows of their life open to the presence of divine reality, to the presence of God. And according to Paul, to be a spiritual person in particular is to be someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In the most basic and fundamental way that we connect with the indwelling reality of the Holy Spirit is through prayer. So to be a spiritual person is to be a praying person. The biblical understanding of the spiritual person is that of a prayerful person. Because of the gift of the Spirit, our lives become praying lives, and such that prayer is a manifestation. A life of prayer is a manifestation that you are filled with the Spirit. 
And the secret of Christian prayer, because you have prayer in, in many religious traditions, but there's something really distinct and unique about the Christian understanding of prayer. Prayer isn't so much about what we get from God, what we ask and what we receive from God. That is part of it. But prayer is that we actually get God. That's the most important thing about prayer, is that in prayer, you don't just get things from God, you get God. Prayer is not, and, and here's the other thing about prayer that's very unique, and we'll really be focusing on this. Prayer is not so much about what I do. I mean, you have to pray. I mean, there's, there's an activity and a discipline. There are words to say. <laughs> you direct your heart. But prayer is about what God does in us when we surrender to prayer. So I want to just reflect on the ministry of the, the Spirit of prayer, the Spirit's ministry of prayer in us. And, and it really, it's more about what the Spirit does in us than what we do. So there's three parts of this. There's an indwelling aspect of the Spirit's ministry of prayer, the witness aspect, and the intercession. So indwelling, witness, and intercession. And, and some of what I'm going to say is, is kind of review. Uh, think of this as a closing sermon, a kind of drawing a lot of things together here, of many things we looked at in depth in, in the past 12 weeks. But the basic presupposition, the, the starting point, if you will, of, of a life of prayer is the truth of the indwelling presence of the Spirit. The Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8, 11, the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. So the underlying assumption for Paul is that, that, that the believer's life is one that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and because of this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our lives become a place of prayer. And I, I, I use that word place in a very specific way because when we, th you know, as modern people, it's very hard for us to grapple with this because it's so far from our experience. But in the ancient world, and, and really, um, and in certain parts of the world still today, most religions have a very, have a sense that there are certain places in the world that are, that God is more present, that are, they're holy places, like shrines or tabernacles, like in, in Islam, right, the, the Mecca is a holy place, or to Jews today, the wall, which is the, the remnants of the temple, and people go there and pray, people make pilgrimages to shrines where there's, there's appearances, you know, there's, all, there's a sense of geography, where there's certain places where the, the veil between heaven and earth is really, really thin, and and, and you go there, and you you're actually can be closer to God. You, you have more access to the Spirit of God. When Jesus came in the flesh, he described himself as the true temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And, and you have to realize, we, again, we're downstream 2,000 histories of, years of history of this, but this was a, this is what, an absolutely revolutionary um, statement that he made. And what he, the big, the big difference between Judaism and Christianity, it comes about because of this statement of Jesus. Because for the Jews, the temple in Jerusalem was the holy place. It was a place where you come near to the presence of God. And what Jesus says is that I am the temple. I am the temple. I am the full presence of God on earth. And this is really revolutionary. And so when Jesus leaves then, he goes into heaven. What does he do? He sends his Holy Spirit, his temple presence upon us 
such that that spirit indwells us. So, so not just as individuals, but as a collective, we are temples. So our very bodies now are holy places for the presence of God. And collectively as a body, we are a holy place. And what this means, I think, is that all Christians, in a sense, are mystics. All Christians live in the direct, immediate, transformative presence of God and experience the divine reality as if you were at the inner, like as if you lived in the, the holy of holies within the temple in the first century. That's what it means to have the Holy Spirit poured out and to indwell you. It's God's temple presence, his intimate, communicative presence. And we live in that. And the way we interact, the way we intersect with that, that heavenly presence is through prayer. The mystical indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is the foundation of the praying life. Now, I want to back up briefly and put this verse, these verses in context a little bit and remind you uh, a little bit of last week's sermon. I use the imagery of the two trees as uh, our lives as a life of tension pulled between two trees, which are like two ages. Let me give you a different analogy to think about this. The Christian life is one that sits at like a frontal boundary, a weather like a frontal boundary of hot and cold air. And wherever you have a frontal boundary, that's where you have storminess, because warm air and hot air collide, and it creates storms. And that is the Christian life. We all live at the intersection of a frontal boundary, and so our lives often are very stormy. <laughs> They're very stormy, because we have the breath of heaven itself in our lives, interacting with death and corruption and sin and weakness and this often creates storminess in our lives tension as i said last week and the unique witness the one of the unique aspects of the spirit's ministry to us in prayer is that of witness you know i mentioned earlier that all christians in a sense are mystics and when we use that word mystic a lot of times people think of rapturous visions of god coming into the presence of god and there's a, there's a lot of debate or conversation about, well, what is the content of a mystical experience? For the Christian, for the Christian, the content of the, of the mystical experience is the assurance and witness of the Spirit. Um, Paul recognizes that the Christian life, again, is one that has lived over these this frontal boundary between heaven and earth, and, or you can think of them as tectonic plates that are always rubbing up against one another, shifting and rubbing together, which creates a great deal of anxiety and suffering in our life. And when you undergo trauma in life, there's a way, a difficult experience, there's a way that that trauma imprints itself upon your, your, very, your, you know, your brain and your body, such that you begin very easily to interpret life according to the, the trauma or the bad experiences you have. And, and so this tends to lead to a great deal of insecurity in our lives, spiritual insecurity. We tend to see when bad things happen, when we experience pain and suffering, it's very, very hard for us, no matter how mature or how many years we've been Christians, to not interpret those bad events as somehow God's displeasure against us. So I did something wrong. What did I do wrong, Lord? And this is where the ministry of witness of the Spirit's assurance comes in, to assure us, because we, we always live with so much spiritual insecurity in our lives. 
And what the ministry of the Spirit does is he comes and he meets us in our insecurity at the emotional root. And again, a lot of this is review of, and I, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon from two weeks back, or three weeks back, on the spirit of adoption. But the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are God's children. I'm going to quote you what Paul writes above. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. The Spirit bearing witness with our spirit addresses the most interior, vulnerable parts of us that question ourselves and question you know, our status as God's children. And it's the internal work of the Spirit in prayer that, that helps us grasp in the deep sense that we really are God's children. And, and, and I, I didn't really talk about the how a couple of weeks back when I talked about this ministry of, of adoption, but, but the way you grapple with that is with prayer. That's how you, you grapple with the truth of, of being a child of God is, is through the experience of prayer. And I, I wanna highlight two aspects and again, some of this is review, but I think a lot of times the most important truths in lives are truths you don't, oh, I got that and I'm moving on. They're things you have to come back to again and again. So there's two aspects of the ministry of witness that the Spirit does that I want to highlight for you. The first one is a, it's, it's delight. That the Spirit um, creates delight in our heart. A childlike delight in God as our Father. The Spirit stirs us up, this desire and delight for God. Illustration I've used in the past, but my, my son Van, when he was five or six years old, was a very heavy sleeper. And um, Katie would, was going into the office sometimes before, early in the mornings. And whenever she would leave before the children would wake up, um, that was bad. You know, that would, they were very upset to not be able to see their mom before they had to go to school, before she went off to work. And I remember one morning I came up, and I turned on the lights. I'm like, Van, it's time to get up. And he just is not moving, right? So I pull the covers off. I turn the light on. I shake him. He's not moving. He's just not moving. I'm talking to him like I made you pancakes with syrup, not moving. <laughs> just not moving. And then I said, okay, buddy, um, if you want to see mommy before she leaves, you need to come downstairs right now. And immediately, he gets up and he goes downstairs to see his mother before she went off to work. There was a delight and a love for his mother that was able to rouse him out of his stupor. Out of the funk of sleep. St. Augustine describes the person of the Holy Spirit as the bond of love between father and son. And again, think about the imagery here is that the Spirit is like the bond of love. Um, imagine what it would be like to be in the middle of the Father and the Son's love, as if you were experiencing that, that special connection for yourself, as if it's your own experience. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He puts us in the middle of that. It causes us to delight in God and know that, we, that God delights in us. So that's the first part. It's a ministry of delight that the Spirit creates in us. But the second piece is um, assurance. It is assurance. An assurance, you might, here's a definition of insurance for you. Assurance is, 
is an experiential confirmation of a comforting truth. And that comforting truth is that you are son and daughter of God and that he loves you and that you belong. That is a, that, see, those are, those are all things that we know in our heads, but we have a very hard time translating into our heart. And the Spirit's job is to translate that into our heart. Again, going back to what Paul said um, in Galatians, and he picks it up here in Romans as well, is, um, he contrasts that between a child and a slave. Um, slavery is the ultimate form of status anxiety. <laughs> it is to live in the world with fear and anxiety. It is to constantly be, to see all of your hardships and, as punishments, to never have a sense that God is really for you. To always have a sense that you're always needing to perform in order to belong. That if you want to keep your spot in the family, you have to keep producing. you got to keep performing. But to be a child is to be free. There's no, there, I mean, there's nothing freer than a child that is in a loving family. Nothing freer in the world than a child in a loving family. And that doesn't mean there's not suffering that goes along with that, or pain, or disappointment, and confusion. But to be in the family, though, knowing that you're loved and cared for, completely transforms how you experience hardship and pain. And if you're experiencing hardship and pain and suffering as one who does not know that they are loved by the Father, and you feel like you're performing, that just completely changes your experience. Again, I want to remind you of Jesus' own experience. And the sequence here is very important. Jesus is baptized. The Spirit comes down like a dove. The Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then it says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tested to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, he doesn't go through the desert and faithfully endure temptation for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the other side, the Father says, good job, now I know you belong, now I know you're my true son, because you obeyed. No, he goes into the wilderness as God's beloved, and it's that that secures and anchors his identity. And so that's, that's part of the Spirit's job of assurance, is just assuring us uh, that we belong, that we are children of God. And so what, what's the, the formula? I mean, there's, there's no, I mean, how do, we, how do we engage assurance, right? How do we get assurance? It's not, it's not something we can manufacture. It's not something you can just talk yourself into. It is, it is, it's a work of God. It's actually God doing something in you. And so I don't really have any, like, practical things to say, do this or do that. But, but one thing I can tell you, and it's, it's really at the heart of this passage, if there is one formula for deepening in your assurance, it is this. It is justification by faith and a life of prayer together equals deep assurance. That's the equation. Justification by faith and a life of prayer together equal deep assurance. Let me, let me just spell that a little bit more. You know, Paul begins this chapter with this statement. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. This is a statement that in Jesus, all of our sins, all of our, our crimes, all, everything we've ever done has been forgiven totally and completely in God. And it's been forgiven. And everything in the, in the future that we do is, will be forgiven. And so if the, salvation is like a coin, and on one side is justification, but on the other side is adoption. And so you're forgiven, but you also, you belong. You're forgiven and you belong. 
You've been acquitted and you're a child. See, see that, that is a truth you just have to keep coming back to over and over again. And you, you do it in prayer. <laughs> you say, you come back to the Lord and you say, the, Lord, this is what you have said about who I am. And I, I take full, I, I, I'm trying to embrace it. And it's from wrestling with this truth personally and applying it in your own heart that assurance comes. So what does that prayer look like? What is that prayer of deep assurance that confirms us in, in the ministry of the Spirit's assurance of us in adoption? Th- this is the last piece. Of, um, this is the Spirit's ministry of intercession. And this is the, the part of this text we know the most or, or le- that we're most familiar with even though we don't understand it. Paul writes, um, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God's will. Again, this, this idea that groaning of the Christian life emerges from, from being like that rope that's pulled between the two trees, right, of the first age and the second age. And this, we'll call it groaning prayer or suffering prayer. Um, it's, it's not like it's, as a prayer, it's, I mean, it often doesn't have any words. It's more about, it's more an experience. It's not a specific request often. But it's the kind of prayer that we're led into as we seek to make sense of our lives in the groaning, in the doubt, in the confusion, to make sense of our desires, to make sense of our pain or our suffering. When, when you're, you're overwhelmed in deep pain and you actually don't even have words and you just go to God and you're like, ugh. Or it may, sometimes it's not even that. You're just laying in your bed and your, your heart is just like screaming out without words. See, that's the groaning prayer. That's, that's when the spirit, is, the spirit is in the midst of that. Paul uses uh, this word weakness, which um, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What is weakness? This is... Um, I wish I could say more about weakness here. There's a lot of important things. But what weakness, as Paul uses it, it's a category we need to recover as people. It is not just your sinfulness. To be weak, yes, is to be sinful. That's part of weakness. It is your propensity to screw things up all the time. That is, in a sense, part of what it means to be a sinner. But it's also just your frailty, your finitude, your humanity, the fact that you have limits, the fact that that some of us were born with certain problems, with certain things about our body that don't work right, or things missing, (laughs) or things in our mind that we didn't ask for, but we experience. These are, these are all aspects of our weakness, and they're not because we are sinners. <laughs> it's part of living in a corrupt world, but you take the frailty of ourselves as human beings, our finitude, our limits, and you take your sinfulness, and you put it together, and that's weakness, and it is powerful, <laughs> right? It is, it, is a, it is a powerful cocktail um, that is debilitating and can be oppressive. And, and Paul here, he says, you know, the Spirit, he enters into the weakness. He, he enters into all the things, that package of ours, that special package that makes life so hard sometimes. And he prays. He prays us. See, to be weak as a person, and the times in your life, it's to be able to, you look, and 
into the future and all you see is darkness and you, and you don't know where God is at, you don't know what the future holds, you're just trying to make sense of things. And you can't even articulate what's wrong. You, can't even under, you really don't even understand what's wrong. And so you have all these, this sort of cauldron of confused and conflicted desires that you're trying to make sense of. And you don't have any clarity where God is or what God is doing. It's just darkness. And this is where Paul says, and the Spirit comes alongside us. He, he literally comes alongside of us and intercedes. And what, what, what I think Paul's saying here is this, is the Spirit, he, he begins to translate all the confused and conflicted babbling of our hearts and desires to God and then translates them back to us. And it happens at a level that's so deep that words can't grasp it. Too deep for words, right? Which means that what I think practically it means is like you don't even know what's happening. You can't even take an account of it. You don't have a record. <laughs> Something's happening. I don't know what's happening. That, that's, that's, that's what I think Paul is getting at here. And what the Spirit does here is he makes us understandable to God. You know, I think sometimes we, you know, a lot of people fear that prayer, like if they don't have the right words, if they don't know the right prayer, like a formula, God won't hear them. And that's just completely true, uh, false. It's completely, it's complete not, it's just so not true at all. The reality is, is like you, you might even know how to create a coherent sentence in your own mind to express what you need from God, but the Spirit goes in and can help make that prayer intelligible to the Lord. So that you should never fear, friends, that somehow like, you don't have the right words to express what you need to the Lord. Again, that's the Spirit's work. But, e- but even more, and, and, and again, there's just so much here. We talk about empathy in our culture, and I think empathy is a really important virtue, um, especially when you're engaging people who are suffering and going through. It means to come alongside a person and to, to sort of recognize the, the impact of their suffering and to show compassion and love. And, and, but the thing about empathy is this. Empathy is always like, you can come alongside, but, but you can never get inside. It's like I can come alongside you in your suffering, and I can, I can be gentle and compassionate and show you love, but, and, I, can, and I, I might even say, you know, I've, I had an experience that was similar to yours. And sometimes, that, you know, that's helpful for us to hear. But you can't get inside. Nobody can get inside your suffering. Nobody can experience that as you experience it, except one person, the Spirit, right? The Spirit gets inside our side, and he's not on the outside. He's actually in the inside. He's actually in the groans. He's in the midst of it, right? He's in the midst of our suffering. He's on the inside of it, not on the outside of our suffering and pain. And from within, the Spirit groans with us. He helps us process. He shines light he gives us perspective, he calms our nerves, he assures us. There's, there's so many things that the Spirit does, right? But it's this last, I want to close with this. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God's will. So the Spirit, in a sense, translates our unintelligible, babbling, and confused and conflicted desires to God. But, but what he does in prayer, in the act of prayer, is he begins to translate God's desires and God's will into the confusing mess of our own. What does that mean? God in prayer, and this is where prayer is, 
is so much more than just asking for things and saying the right words. It's, it is, and this is why I think Paul uses prayer as an example when he talks about weakness, because prayer gets at the center of our humanity. In prayer, you're, all, you're, all, you're completely exposed and vulnerable. Your heart, your soul, everything that you are, all your desires are on the table there, and they're before the Lord. And the Spirit gets in the midst of that. And he begins, when you, he, in the very act of prayer, he begins to do that, that sort of surgery <laughs> and reforming of our desires, where he begins to help us understand what God's desire is for us not simply from the outside by somebody telling us, but from the inside. Groaning prayer is the Spirit working in us, sanctifying our hearts. And it's sort of like a tuning fork. The Spirit is like a tuning fork which brings our desires into resonance with those of God, right? This is what um, prayer does. It changes our very desires and by giving us God, God's very presence. Paul um, says here that really the goal of the Spirit's prayer is to bring us to conformity of Jesus Christ, that, that nothing can stand in the way of God accomplishing his purposes for us, which means um, it's not like he has some plan he just made up, but his purposes are really an expression of his love of his loving plan, and the Spirit is working that out in the depths of our soul. The praying life is our entry point into the life of God. See, I want to close with what I started with, is that to, when you pray, it's not, what you, it's not what we get from prayer, it's that we actually get God. And who is the God we get? The God we get is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The life of prayer is, is, is a sort of doorway into the triune life where we become fully Trinitarian, where we join in the conversation and the joy of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's what we do when we pray. Let's close. Father, we, we do ask that you pray, we, you pray us. <laughs> uh, our words are so inadequate even to capture what is in our own hearts. Even when we think we understand, we often don't. But you do understand. Your Spirit understands. And you are always at work, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it. And we know that the plan um, is always to conformity, loving conformity and glorification and restoration to our Savior Jesus Christ. And so wherever we find ourselves this morning, whether in deep pain or, or groaning or lethargy or apathy, Lord, may your spirit come in and do that deep heart work in us. Teach us to pray, Lord. Teach us to cry out with all that we are to you and to know that you, you will answer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.